with me as we read this together. Over the past year, we've been working our way through the book of Luke, and over the past several weeks, we've been working our way through a series of parables. If you remember, last week, we looked at one of the most famous parables, the, the parable of the prodigal son, or the parable of the two sons. And this week, we'll be looking at a parable that's not nearly as famous, maybe one you've never heard before, the parable of the dishonest manager, or the unjust steward. But now, out of love and reverence for God's holy and infallible word, please pay attention as God speaks to us in Luke chapter 16. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, or a steward, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. And then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also, also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful with the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And friends, so ends the reading of God's word. And what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God, this is indeed your word, and we do need you to speak to us. We do acknowledge that you are wiser than we are. In fact, you are infinitely wise. And there are some things that are hard for us to hear and our hearts are hard, but we ask your word to be what, it said, what your word says it is, a hammer to break through the hardness of our heart. And may it be a light to our hearts and to our eyes that we might see the beauty of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. 
There may be no greater battleground for our hearts than over the issue of money. And for many of us, most of us, it begins with a question of provision and obtaining the things that we think that we want or need. Kids, uh, you, you may know this. If you have some sort of money or allowance of your own, you may have some, some number, some dollar amount where you are saving for so that you can get that toy or that game that you've been looking for. Others of us have something else that we're often so earnest in pursuing. Maybe it's we're looking ahead to paying for college. Maybe it's an engagement ring. Maybe it's a house. Maybe it's paying down debt that we have. Maybe it's eventual retirement. For some of us, it's just trying to, a certain number to try to make it through retirement. But it's not just provision. There's also a question of value. We, we give to money and authority to give us value. And you can hear this in the recent political debates. When there's this question, do we really value our teachers given how much we pay them? And whether we're talking about CEO pay or sports figure pay or our coworkers' pay, we like to equate a number with a person's value. In fact, we give authority to money, to money so prevalently, so easily, so automatically that I think we're often blind to it. But it's not really an American thing because God's Word was written 2,000 years ago and it speaks to the same things that our hearts tend to do today. But what our passage, what Jesus tries to do in this passage is He tries to free us from the tyranny of money and to stake His gracious and gentle authority over our lives. Now, Luke starts the passage and he says, uh, Jesus also said to the disciples. Now, this, this parable comes immediately after the parable of the prodigal son. And if you remember, that parable was, uh, Jesus was speaking to the tax collectors and sinners and to the Pharisees. But here he turns and he's saying this parable to the disciples. And in this parable, there's a rich man who has a steward or a manager. Now, kids, it's important that you understand what a steward is. I'm going to use that word steward more than manager. A steward is kind of like a servant, but he's more than that because he has authority over the master's things, his, his possessions, his money. And as such, the master would have to have an incredible amount of trust. Imagine if you were to have somebody be in charge of all of your money and your stuff. But the master hears that this man, this steward, is wasting his possessions. And so he's angry, and he calls in the steward, and he says, you're fired, give an account of what you're going to do, because you can no longer manage my money. And the steward panics. He says, well, I'm not strong enough to dig, to do manual labor. I'm, not, I'm too prideful to beg. What am I going to do? And so he comes up with this plan. And one by one, he calls in the master's debtors, and he begins to forgive their debt. Now, it's hard for us to see exactly what's going on there, but the, the steward is forgiving an incredible amount of debt. Uh, the first debtor comes in, and the, the steward says, well, how much do you owe? And he says, a hundred measures of oil. A measure was a bath. 
So 100 baths of oil was about 875 gallons of oil, about what would be produced by 150 uh, olive oil trees. And 100 baths of oil would be about 1,000 a, a denarii. And one denarius is one day's work. So this is three years' worth of wages for the average day laborer. And what does the steward do? He says, take that bill, cut it in half. Go from 100 to 50. So three years of wages. Put that in your own terms. That's a significant debt. And he forgives half of it. A year and a half worth of debt. But the second guy... There's even a greater amount of debt. He says, how much do you owe? He says, 100 measures of wheat. That measure is a core. Uh, 100 cores of wheat is about what would be produced by 100 acres of, uh, of farmland. And that would cost roughly 2,500 to 3,000 denarii, or 8 to 10 years worth of wages. And so the steward comes and he says, okay, cut that down from 100 to 80. Again, cutting off a a year and a half to two years of debt. Significant debt. This is a significant gift to these debtors. But then something remarkable happens. We know that the steward is managing the master's money, and we would expect that this master would get angry, possibly even take the steward and throw him into prison because he's wasted his possessions even more. But that's not what happens. Right there in verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. He, he commends him. And I think the reason is there's something going on that we don't even realize with our 21st century eyes. Yes, this was the master's possession. Yes, this was debt owed the master. But it was customary in this day for the steward to attach uh, an interest payment. Apparently, service fees are nothing new. And that interest payment would be what the steward would get as his compensation. And so what's happening here is the steward is saying, I'm going to forego the interest payment that is due me now with hopes that once I've lost my job, I'm going to have somewhere else to land. I'm going to ingratiate myself to these debtors. Maybe they will hire me as a steward later on. He's foregoing what he's, what he, he's getting now for something in the future. And not only the master commends him, but Jesus commends him too. He says, the master commended the dishonest manager, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. In other words, he's commending this guy, saying, people of this world know how to operate by the rules in order to help themselves out, in order to, to accomplish the purposes that they need. They know how to forego what, what is coming to them now in order to establish security in the future, to have a future-mindedness. And then Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, you need to do the same thing. He says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. This is, this is a radical reshaping of the way that we think about money. For those of you who've lost a job, you might understand this a little bit more. But when you, when you lose a job, you realize your powerlessness. You can't, you can't make somebody hire you. And there's no end in sight. 
there's no, there's no day in the future when you know for certain, I'm going to have a job at this particular date. And it would be natural for, I think, any one of us in this position of the steward to say, no, no, you're going to pay my interest right now so that I have money to live off of from now until whenever I find that next job. But the steward foregoes that in the here and now with this future-mindedness. And I think the same is true for us in this life. I think there we, as much as we try to cling on to money, we know in our hearts that we are awfully powerless. And so our heart's inclination is to cling for whatever we can, to hold on to it as tightly as we can. But Jesus is commending us, he's encouraging us to be generous, to hold it with an open hand, and to forego at sometimes immediate security with an eye on eternal wealth or eternal security. Uh, And this isn't just about, this isn't a divinely inspired savings plan. This is really a question about ultimate authority over our lives. Because think with me for just a moment about the authority that we give to money. We, we look to money as our provider. I need to earn a certain amount of money, I need to save a certain amount of money, and then I can buy the things that I want, I can get the things that I need, that's the only way that I can live. Or it's our security. Proverbs says that the wealth of the, the rich is like is their fortified city. They believe it's an unscalable wall. We want to save up enough because you talk about financial security. We want to be able to be good for a long period of time. It's our source of happiness. How many of you, when you look at your bank accounts or you look at your stocks and things are going well, you feel this exuberance, this happiness that you've got what you need. But when things go sour, you don't even want to look. Past couple weeks have been tough. You don't even want to look. It's our judge. We let money be our judge. What what do we say? A man is successful if he's made a lot of money. If somebody's in poverty, they must not be very wise. They must not make good decisions. We make a good investment in returns in more money. We allow that to judge. These are value judgments. And we look to it as our savior. There are So often we think that only money can solve the problems that are true problems. Just by throwing more money at it, it'll solve our problems. But these these terms, these titles that we give to money implicitly, our provider, our security, our happiness or joy, our judge, our savior, these are titles, friends, that God ascribes to himself. So we need to look with faith to God as the source and the provider of these things. So how do we gain a proper perspective? How do we, how do we move to that? Um, scripture says quite a bit about money and how we ought to think rightly about it, but it, even in this passage, there are a number of key things that I think help orient us in that pr- proper direction. And the first and foremost is this concept of stewardship the concept of stewardship. In the the parable itself, Jesus is talking about a steward, but then 
uh, in his summary at the end, he, when he, in uh, verse 12, he says, if you have not been faithful with that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? The concept of stewardship reminds us that everything that we have, every penny that we have in our possessions is not ours to own, but is ours to steward. It, is, it belongs to another. It comes from God himself. Your job. You would say, well, I got this from working hard at my job. But how did you get your job? Well, how did the Lord bring you to that? In many ways, God provides every one of our needs. And so having this, this stewardship concept is so key. And it helps, I think, in two different ways. First, if every amount of money that we have comes from God, and every benefit that we have from money is coming from God, then God must be greater than the money. God must be the true source of anything good that we are getting from that money. But secondly, and possibly more importantly, it orients us to be thinking about that we need to use every bit of money that we have in our possessions in the way that God prescribes. There's there's no element of what we have that we can sit back and say, well, that's God's part, and this this is my part. And I'll I'll let God deal with that, and I will do with this how I want. No, every bit is from God. Every bit is His. And if you remember, the the steward, the charge against him was that this man was wasting his possessions. That's interesting. So who defines what is wasting possessions? It would be the owner, the master. And I'll give you an example. Both of my boys are in college. And perhaps I went down to College Station and I saw my son and I said, son, here's some money for textbooks. I know that you're tight on funds. Use this for textbooks. And as soon as I leave, he says, ha, 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 joke's on you. We don't use textbooks anymore. (laughs) And I'm going to go out with my friends. He would be wasting my money. Why? Because he hadn't used the money that I gave him for the purpose that I intended. But by the same token, let's say I went down and I said, son, I know you've been working really hard, and I know that your money is tight. I'm going to give you a break from mac and cheese. Here's some money. Go out with your friends. Have a good time. And he says, I don't know that I've got enough money for tuition next semester. I'm going to save this for that. He'd still be wasting my money. Because in fear, he's holding on to that which I've given him, and he's not using it for the purpose that I intended him. And how does Jesus in this passage prescribe that we ought to use the money he's given us? He says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. He wants us to be generous. Now, depending upon our financial situation, our financial priorities, that may seem like wasting. But this is money that has been given to us by God for the purpose that He has intended, and He is the Master. He's not holding out on us 
He's not trying to keep us from some sort of joy. He knows us better than we know ourselves, and he is commanding us to use that money for his glory's sake. Scripture, throughout all, all of Scripture, there's so, many, so much about what the proper use of money is. And if you read through Proverbs, there's two, uh, two guardrails that you constantly see. There's foolishness with money, and then there's stinginess. And the heart behind them both is a love of money. There's wanting to be foolish and use money for my own pleasure. And then there's the stingy heart that is afraid to use God's gifts in the ways that he's intended. Money is not the end. Money can't be the purpose for which we're living. But it's not all about uh, austerity either. God doesn't prescribe us to live as though we are beggars. Ecclesiastes says that there's nothing better than to enjoy the fruit of our labors, and yet the enjoyment of our labors can't be the goal. It's a benefit that the Lord gives to us. We are charged to flee the love of money. We are charged to be content with what the the Lord gives us, and we are to be gracious and generous, generous hearts. So that concept of stewardship, I think, is very helpful. Um, but then Jesus also says a couple things. He says that the money that we have, it's, it's little, and it's not true. He says here, he says, one who is, in verse 10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. As you look at your finances you may think, well, I resonate with that very well. But I, what I have is very little. And you're right. But here's the thing. If you had won that $1.6 billion Powerball, that would still be little. Very little in the eyes of God. It's not about the number. It's about the overall quality of these finances. What does that tell us about who God is and the riches that he has? But then he, he also says, uh, if then you have not been faithful in with the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? So this is not true riches that we're dealing with. Now, kids, um, in my house, we have a game that we play from time to time. You've probably played this game. The game is Monopoly. Uh, less than half of my family likes to play it. <clears throat> but in that game, obviously, we have lots of different kinds of monopoly money, fake money. We've got all the different ones, and our favorite ones, of course, are the, the $100 and the $500. But even if we had every single one of those, that wouldn't be worth nearly as much as this one $1 bill, would it? Of course not. But friends, what Jesus is telling us is that the money that we cling on to is much closer to that monopoly money than we even realize. It's, it feels real though, doesn't it? But how real is it? Its value is not stable. Inflation shows us that over time things are not worth the same. It 
comes and goes as it pleases when the stock market's up and down, when we have unexpected bills, all of a sudden, it, it, poof, it's gone, and it never makes good on the promises that it makes. It never provides lasting joy. It never satisfies. Whoever loves money never has money enough. And it can't save us. Jesus calls the, the money unrighteous wealth. And there's lots of um, debate over what exactly that means. What, one thing I can say that it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that money in and of itself is unrighteous. How do we know this? Because God is the giver of everything that we have. And in Him there is no unrighteousness at all. There, throughout Scripture, those who have money are not chastised for having money, but about how they use the money that they've been given. Um, what it probably means is probably one or two things. Uh, dishonest or unrighteous in comparison to true riches. Uh, just uh, contrasting the two. But also unrighteous in the sense that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Murder, coveting, stealing. But it's not the money itself. It's what our hearts do with that money. So what are the true riches that Jesus is talking about? Well, uh, there's something that gives us a hint uh, in verse 9. He says, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. There's some kind of eternal nature of it. It's not wealth that's going to fail, but wealth that is going to be there for us in eternity, which is helpful, but not complete. And we can get there, but you'll have to bear with me for just a second. Remember that this parable comes on the heels of the parable of the prodigal son. And that parable Jesus was telling in response to the Pharisees saying, why are you dining with tax collectors and sinners? And he tells this parable, which has so much in it about inheritance. The younger son comes and demands his inheritance from the father. The father gives him his inheritance. The son goes off and squanders it. And then the younger son comes back and the father embraces him and says, put on him his best robe. Put on, put on the, the, the signet ring. Let's throw a party. And what the father is doing is he's welcoming him back into the family. And when he welcomes him back into the family, he's giving him an inheritance once again. But where's that inheritance coming from? It's coming from the share of the older brother who stayed behind. And the older brother knows this and he's enraged. And remember, this story is the story that Jesus told when the Pharisees said, why are you dining with tax collectors and sinners? Why are you doing this again? And he's saying, this is why. Because I am the true older brother who didn't stay back at my father's house, but who pursued after my brothers and sisters to give them my inheritance. My inheritance. All of it. And that, friends, is what this true riches are that awaits us. Jesus talks about this in, in John, or John chapter 16. He says, all that the Father has is mine, and the Holy Spirit will declare it to you. He says, do not fear, little flock, 
For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And your assignment for this afternoon is to read through Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and pay attention to how often Paul talks about the concept of inheritance. He says that we have received an inheritance in Christ Jesus, and he gushes over it over and over to the point where he says, yes, it's, you can't see it. It's kept in heaven for you, but he's praying earnestly that God would give us the eyes to see what is the, what is the glorious inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus. That, friends, is the true riches that we have. All that the Father has has been given to the Son, and He, in His love, has lavished that on us. This is incredible wealth. This is, this is wealth beyond our, our imagination. And so when He says, He turns in, in verse 1, He says, and He also said to the disciples, it's like He's turning from that parable to say, as recipients of that love and that inheritance that you've received, this is how you ought to respond with generous hearts. This is true riches. Why is this important? Because riches of this magnitude will change you. If you had won that billion-dollar Powerball, it would have changed you. Now, we could argue about whether it would change you for better or for worse, but that's little compared to the riches that have been lavished on us in Jesus Christ. But what we can't miss, friends, is that it's not the stuff. It's, it's not an inheritance of stuff. In the parable of the prodigal son, both the younger and the older son missed the point. They missed their father for his inheritance. They wanted the inheritance to the expense of the father. But the inheritance that we have, friends, is the Father. It is in Jesus Christ. It's not gold or silver or any amount of money. It is the God Himself who loves us, who protects us, who lavishes His goodness, His grace, His security, His kindness upon us. That, friends, is our inheritance. God Himself has promised that He will bless us and keep us. That He will make His face shine upon us and be gracious to us. That He will lift up His countenance and give us His peace. That is riches beyond our wildest imagination. How could that not change everything? And Jesus says that this, the money that we have now, the way we use it is a test for that true, those true riches. If we're not faithful in this, how can we be faithful in, in that which is true? It tests our true allegiances. Are we trusting in the vehicle of God's goodness or are we trusting in God Himself? A generous heart trusts God as provider and Lord. God Himself says, be generous. And we often feel like, well, I don't, I don't really have enough to be generous. But God says, you have more than enough to be generous. Because 
if God is the provider of all things, as he says, and he is the Lord of us, as he says he is, he would have to be awfully cruel to, to not give us what we need and then tell us to give it away. But God says, test me in this. Test me in this. But it also, it's also a test because it gives us an opportunity to live out that generosity which God has shown to us. That inheritance that is ours is only ours because of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus chose to leave the riches of heaven to rescue us, to be able to lavish on us that, that goodness and, and that grace and that inheritance. And in the here and now, God still blesses His people. And He gives us an opportunity to be His means of doing that. He gives us money so that we, in God's name, can bless others to be generous, so that we can not, not to make ourselves look better, but to point to God and say, God is the giver of all good things. This is a gift from God. Praise God, because He loves you. But friends, it's not for our salvation. We have to be careful with what Jesus says in verse 9 when He says, uh, do these things so that when this unrighteous wealth fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. We are not saved by our generosity. We're not saved if we do these things. This is a response to the, the grace that we have received. But, Lord willing, one day we will be received into those eternal dwellings with praise and glory and celebration, even with those with whom we've had the joy of being able to bless with the blessings that the Lord has given to us. This is true riches for those who have been blessed by the Lord Jesus. But it takes faith to see this. It takes faith to hold on to this. And not everybody has that faith. And when you don't have the faith, then you scoff and you ridicule. And that's what happens here with the Pharisees in verse 14. Luke says that the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. And I think the ridicule comes in two different forms. One is we doubt the, the reality or the, the true practical value of these eternal riches. And you might be thinking that yourself. You might be thinking, well, yeah, eternal riches, searchable riches in Christ, yeah, that's great. But when my mortgage comes due, I'm not going to be able to cash that out somehow and pay it. So you scoff and you ridicule. And there is a reality to that. There, there is a reality that Eternal riches are of a different realm than the realm that we live in. And it, is it hard to believe? Sure, it takes tremendous faith. But that doesn't mean that it's not real. And how much faith are you putting in money? How often have you trusted money to provide something that it never has? And how much hope and faith do you continue to pour out that one day, maybe the money that I obtain will provide exactly what I'm looking for. Money was never intended to be a replacement for God. It was a gift from Him to be used for His glory. Money is a cruel master, but a wonderful servant. But the other reason why I think we scoff or we ridicule is a failure to grasp God's lavish grace. 
what we have is only because of God's grace. Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he says, you are those who justify yourselves before men. You you are self-justifying yourself. But God knows your heart. For what's exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And then he goes on to talk about the law, which seems a bit odd with everything he talks about. And he ends talking about divorce. And here's what I think is going on. The Pharisees are the older brother from the parable of the prodigal son. They're the ones that feel like they have earned every penny of what they've got. This is their money. And Jesus is telling them, no, this is from my father. This is, this is a gift. And you need to be generous. And the Pharisees are saying, no, 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 no. This is my money. I am not going to give it to somebody else. I've earned this because of my righteousness. Jesus makes this point that, yes, the, the kingdom of God is here and the kingdom of God comes with grace. But that doesn't mean that, that the law is gone. there's still this standard of righteousness that exists, which which makes the grace even greater. The Pharisees have minimized that law with the the talk on on, on divorce and remarriage. Jesus almost seems to go further than Moses did and definitely further than the religious leaders of that day did with this particular law. He's pointing that out as, no, no, the kingdom of God has come But the law is still there. You're still liable if you're not under grace. If you're wanting to justify yourself by the law, you've got to go a lot farther than where you've gone. And you've already broken it. And friends, if you are seeking to justify yourself by your righteousness or by the things that you've done, God knows your heart. And He knows His law is much more profoundly expansive than what you are obeying. You can never save yourself by your own righteous deeds. And the Pharisees missed that point. And if you seek to justify yourself, you will never truly grasp the grace of God because you don't think you need it. And if you don't grasp the grace of God, you will never see the beauty of Christ and what He is lavishing on you. You will never cling to Him for His righteousness, which is the only way that God will ever see you as righteous. And when earthly riches fail, you will have nothing except monopoly money. There will be no eternal riches except for those who are found in Christ Jesus. But friends, if we can just look for just a moment with eyes of faith at the Lord Jesus, we can see an older brother who left the riches of heaven and entered into impoverished humanity for us to be able to lavish on us this tremendous gift. And we can see a Savior who willingly was despised and rejected so that God would turn His face toward us and be gracious to us. And we would hear with faith the promise that God makes to us that if God did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also graciously give us 
all things. And friends, seeing with eyes of faith, how can we not but live generously knowing that in Christ Jesus we have eternal riches beyond measure. Let's pray together. Oh God, you do love us more than we could ever know. We pray as Paul did that you would give us eyes to see the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus and what is the glorious inheritance in the saints. And we pray not just that we would know it, but that it would change us for your gracious purposes. Would you use us to be your workers of generosity in the midst of this world? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.